Well, we come today to the final message in this little brief series on the Christian conscience, and I'm eager to get to 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, as you can see from the screen will be the passage we'll work through this morning, or at least a portion of it. But before we do, I'd like to pray again, and so ask you to join me, please, that uh, the Lord would continue to open our hearts to his truth. Our Lord and our God, to enter into and enjoy such a personal, personal relationship with you is beyond our greatest hopes or imagination. You are the God who knew us before time began. In grace, you fashioned us in your image. And in grace, you pursued us after the fall. In grace, you sent your Son to be that satisfactory payment for our sins. And in grace, you brought us to life and clothed us with power to do what is right, as we just sang a little bit ago. Your grace is our confident expectation that we will, in fact, arrive in your presence, fully conformed to Christ. No spot, no blemish, but perfect in every way. We thank you. It's an extravagant grace that we would be called the people of your pasture, the sheep of your hand. You are the protector and provider that we look to this morning. And as we continue to pray, Good Shepherd, lead us through these dark valleys and shadowed paths of life. Your promise to stay by our side is powerful consolation for us. And we believe in our hearts that you are all that we need, but please help our unbelief. Because there are many moments where somehow we feel we have to be the ones who are in control or we have to be the ones who fully understand. Cause us to rest our souls in you alone. Let your truth and your presence expel the cares and anxieties of our souls and open our hearts and tune our minds to the powerful truths of the gospel so that no difficult circumstance, no weakness of faith, no besetting sin, no misunderstanding may dominate our souls this day. But let our hearts and minds, our wills be ruled by Jesus the King. Thankful, we are thankful, Heavenly Father, that you extend such kind invitations to us all throughout your word. And you say to those who are hungry, come, you say to those who are bankrupt by their sin, come. And so as you speak through your word today, give us faith to believe and give us submissive hearts to obey and give us, Father, life that we may live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There could not be more polarizing opinions uh, and statements in our world today than what you find related to this whole COVID and masking thing. And just in the last couple of weeks, there have been two very poignant uh, testimonies, and I've summarized a little bit of that. And I'd, I don't know where you are on the spectrum, and in one respect, it doesn't matter. And before you would even say where you are publicly, you might want to listen to the Word of God uh, to give some perspective on this thing right now. But a couple of weeks ago, I was reading uh, a little brief article in the Salt Lake Tribune, and one individual was, was quoted there, and there's a little portion there uh, that I'm going to read, but listen to the whole paragraph. 
wearing a mask violates my religious liberties. This man wrote in an email, apparently stating further, whether or not anyone agrees with me, I have a deep spiritual conviction that wearing a mask is a satanic societal ritual meant to initiate us into a new normal or a new world order. It is in part the mark of the beast spoken of in the book of Revelation. Wow. I mean, it's one thing to say, I don't prefer to wear a mask. It's a whole other thing to, to kick it into the realm of satanic rituals. And then at the other end of the spectrum, and, and I probably lean more this way myself, but there would be uh, those who would say, listen, th- this is a real virus. And, and now at this point, I think most of us who haven't had it at least have family or friends who've had it, some of them uh, sicker than others, some even dying. Uh, it's a sobering reality, but so people say and, and write things like this, take it seriously. I mean, nobody wants to wear these masks, but as quoted on the screen, it, it protects others. I don't know where you are personally in this, but as followers of Christ, this is just one of multiplied examples of, of strong differences of opinion some of which are so strong that they would actually divide friends one from another. They would divide congregations like ours into different sides. Uh, They would create arguments and debates, uh, some of which lead to more offenses and sin. And we looked at some of those things even this last week in Romans 14 and 15. And remember how Paul walked us through examples of those conflicting ideas which had entered the church at Rome. And there were two kinds of sin that were erupting at that particular point, both of which are condemnable before God. And the one is the sin of judgmentalism where the weak Christians were actually assessing the spirituality of others who were eating food that had been offered to idols. Remember that context? And and the judgmentalism, Paul calls out and says, you can't do that. And the strong believers were despising or looking down on the weak brothers as if their spirituality was so immature that it was offensive in and of itself. And Paul says, you can't do that either. And and remember, we built a little bit of a, a chart out of some of these Principles, the motivating love of Christ in Romans 15 verse 3 was, was powerful for us as Paul walks us all the way to the example and even beyond the example of Christ to the actual work of Jesus where he does something so extravagant, so powerful that he brings the enemies of God into a right relationship with him. And so we were, we're listening to Paul say it is Jesus who set your interests above his own and served you. So welcome one another for love's sake. Then he also said he served as a Jew in order to save both Jew and Gentile. We talked very briefly about how Christ wasn't always a Jewish man. He was God from eternity past, God the Son, dwelling in a perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he chose to enter that ethnicity chose to enter that moment in history into that culture and submit himself to a whole bunch of unnecessary and inconvenient things in order that he might save people like us. And so this is part of the solution of love. First of all, the love of Christ motivates us and then the actual experience of the welcoming love of Christ is what we are to participate in. 
And what Paul really says to both the strong Christians and the weak, strong in conscience, weak in conscience, that remember the strong were the ones who are saying, you know what, I, I, this meat offered to idols, idols aren't a thing. And we'll go, we'll see a similar thing unfolding in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 today. And the weak saying, ah, there's just, there's just too much association with pagan rituals and, and idolatry, and so I won't eat the meat. But, but both groups are exhorted and admonished by Paul to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And when we love one another proactively, love through those strong differences of opinion, many of which actually have spiritual uh, significance tied to them, uh, look, at, look at that bottom box. This is what glorifies God through visible harmony. Josh, can you advance that for me? Glorifies God through visible harmony. So today, though, I want to go to 1 Corinthians 8. If your Bible isn't open there yet, do it now, please. And uh, I want to read a portion of, of 1 Corinthians 8 and then a portion of 1 Corinthians 9. So we'll take a few minutes uh, as I read this entire chapter and then just a select number of verses from verse 9 or chapter 9. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. But this knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That's Paul saying, you don't know everything. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. And he's not speaking in a postmodernistic way, like you have your truth, we have our truth. No, he's just saying straight up, there, there's actually only one God. So let's be clear on that as well. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble." Now let me summarize the first 18 verses of 1 Corinthians 9 by simply saying Paul is going to jump now into this whole theme of personal rights and he's going to give multiple examples of rights that he actually has before God. Uh, the right to be married, the, the right to receive compensation for gospel ministry. But some of the point that he's making here is that he actually foregoes receiving those benefits or exercising those rights because there's a greater priority for him. And so now verse 19, he says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 
What does that look like, you might say? What does that look like, Paul? Well, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, that is under the Mosaic law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, now he's speaking of Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." So here at the end of this study on the conscience, we're being moved by the Spirit of God through the writing of the Apostle Paul to to go beyond just trying to resolve those differences of opinion and even beyond how we would love one another in a way that that truly makes for peace in in an assembly of saints like this where there would be a variety of opinions. Paul is actually moving us under the direction of the Holy Spirit to a significant mission. And if through this series on the conscience you have simply come to a place of saying, oh, I guess there are some things I can do and some things that I probably should not do and so we're calibrating our conscience according to the authority of God's word, you haven't gone all the way. I've said from the outset that the conscience is a, a human characteristic designed by God to answer to the highest authority it perceives. And so we looked in those early weeks, first at clearing the conscience from real guilt before God, then we looked at calibrating the conscience, adjusting it according to God's authority so that it's not miscalibrated, if I can put it that way, by your upbringing or some kind of community expectation or even religious traditions outside the Word of God, but calibrated according to the Word of God. That's because we want a healthy conscience that functions as God designs it to function. But now Paul is pressing us beyond just that 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 me-centric view of the conscience that says, well, under God's authority, I can do these things and I should not do these things. Now, let the world and the rest of you just leave me alone. Now, there's something else here. Now, a few quick uh, additional summary points, even to just tie it back into last week because this is really important. We saw some things in Romans 14 Uh, that are pretty simple and straightforward, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. First of all, your conscience is yours before God alone. So that means you and I must submit our conscience to God alone. Romans 14, 22, the faith that you have, Paul wrote, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. That doesn't set me or you up as the final authority. It's God who's in authority. But when you can live before God with a clean conscience, you're in a really good place. There's a second truth here, and that is you should never violate your conscience. It's interesting that Paul goes on in Romans 14, 23 to say, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. And here's the big point, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now remember in Romans 14, he's speaking about weak believers. Some are like, I can't eat that meat. It was offered to idols. There's there's a sinful association in my heart and mind. And Paul's saying to the strong, "We, we all know there's no real 
entity behind that sacrifice. It's just good meat. But the weak brother is not yet ready for it. One author writes, you are sinning against your conscience when you believe your conscience is speaking correctly and yet you refuse to listen to it. And then, and this is actually from that book that I recommended uh, on the conscience by J.D. Crowley and Andy Nacelli. Here's, I mean, this is almost one of those stunning statements. It's so simple in its illustrative power, but here it comes. If you think that it's wrong to drink root beer, then you are sinning if you drink root beer. You know why? Look at, well, I know your Bibles aren't there, but listen to the word of God again in Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, because there's a similar thought. Not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. They can't eat that meat in faith. They can't take that step. They can't even crack open a root beer in faith. And so God would say, don't ever violate your conscience. Now, I'm thankful that God doesn't leave us in that state of of weak conscience, but his intention is to grow us, and as he is growing us together, let's remember this third point, don't force another to violate his or her conscience, because you may be sitting there going, it's root beer. It's actually a good gift from God. And brother, you should stop calling it sin. It's not sin. And if you get into a debate and quarrel and finally reach that point where you're like, drink the root beer, well, you've done exactly what Paul is saying a strong Christian should never do. The weaker brother is an individual whose scruples of conscience may rest on a faulty conclusion. Granted, that's what's taking place here both in Rome and Corinth. But it's a real issue, and we care for that weak brother. Let me interject here that all of us are weak in at least some areas. We'd like to think that we're either strong, actually we'd all like to think, oh, I'm I'm the strong Christian. And then there are others who are all weak. Truth is, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, there are probably some areas that are well-developed, that are strong, but there are still some areas that are weak. I have a dear friend who, because of the context in which he grew up and the lifestyle he lived before conversion, really could not, in faith, listen to any pop music. This is by his own testimony. And he really struggles when the church uses amped up music. And if he were here, he would even tell you it's because there's still, still such strong association with the life I lived, which was completely immoral and godless, and even hearing some of those, those tunes take me back to a place I don't wanna go. His conscience may be weak until he sees Jesus in that particular area, but if you knew him, uh, there are so many other things about him where he's a strong, godly, mature, committed believer. I think you would be stunned as you got to know him to hear him say, can't do that music. I think that's exactly what Paul is speaking of here. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, verses 12 and 13 again. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Nobody wants to do that. I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and he say, Danny, you were so careless and thoughtless that you carelessly actually led other believers to commit sin. To, to do things that they were not ready to do in faith. 
Look at Paul's conclusion, verse 13. Therefore, this is, this is the right conclusion. If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's love. Do you see how we have to press through just the individual issues? What can I do? What, what should I not do before the Lord? But we actually have to consider the people we're called to serve. Guard your conscience according to God's word. Second big point. Grow your conscience in God's word. Uh, it's important for us to recognize that an untrained conscience does not honor God. Now that seems obvious, doesn't it? But there are many people, and we've all probably done it ourselves, who actually want to justify their actions by simply saying, well, my conscience doesn't bother me. Well, that could potentially be a good thing. It could potentially be a bad thing. You know, there was a time when all four of my children were not the least bit bothered by their nakedness. And after baths, they would escape the bathroom and run through the house uh, without clothing. They didn't care if family were there, friends, strangers, didn't matter. Woohoo! Bath time is done, on the way to bed. Now, you would think that was seriously wrong if I said, and it goes on to this day. Most of you have already filled in the blank, knowing that my kids range in age from 25 down to 18. We are way beyond that. And I'm thankful we are. That's because their conscience is needed to be trained. It's okay with toddlers, maybe, but there does come a point, right, where, and that's why we catch our kids and say, and wrap them up in a towel, or we take them back to their room and get them dressed and say, no, you have to put clothes on. But there's a time where they don't care, clothed, unclothed, doesn't matter. Their conscience is clear. That's an untrained conscience. So just because your conscience doesn't bother you is not an indication that it's okay for you to do, to say, to think even those particular thoughts. Remember, early on we looked at a guilty conscience, noting that guilt is not primarily a feeling, but it's a fact based on whether or not you are responsible or culpable to God for those actions. And we actually touched briefly on an Old Testament passage that gave examples of unintentional sins where people did stuff, they had no idea that God was offended and that they were actually guilty, but God said, you are. We also looked briefly at a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. And a seared conscience is not functioning in the way God intended. That might also be the reason a person can say, well, my conscience doesn't bother me. A seared conscience is a conscience that has become hardened and made insensitive to the authority of God. And you know, you can actually sear your conscience in, in two different ways. One would actually be through irreligious, immoral activity, you can sin repeatedly, rebelling knowledgeably to the point where your conscience will be quiet, the Holy Spirit will be quenched and no longer speak to you, and, and you will reach a point where your conscience is deadened. Do you know what's interesting to me in 1 Timothy 4 verse 2? Is that Paul is actually referring to people whose consciences have been seared through extra-biblical commands and practices, things that are outside the gospel itself, outside the Old Testament and the New Testament, but are very religious on the surface. And he speaks of those who actually forbid, uh, who, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
So it has the appearance of religious zeal, of religious commitment, but ultimately, if we are submitting ourselves to those things that God has not authorized or commanded, we can deaden the conscience through religious practice. I actually think there's a good bit of that that's happened in this valley. Many very committed, very religious people who subscribe to rules and regulations and and the practice of that through the years has calloused or made insensitive their consciences to God's gospel. So the fact that you might say, well, my conscience doesn't bother me may or may not be a good thing. And if your conscience is not functioning because it's been seared or it's not functioning properly because you are untrained, you're in a very dangerous and vulnerable position. An untrained conscience does not honor God. Here's a second truth that you see emerging in the scriptures. An overly restrictive conscience does not honor God. Have you ever thought about this? Is there, is there any value to having a conscience that is stricter than God's? Not ultimately. Now, it could depend on the reason for the strictness, and we've already seen the example of weak faith. And I use the illustration of little children who need to be trained, and that's why we're patient with them over time, because we're saying, well, there's weakness here, but we can strengthen that weakness through time in the Word and, and, and conversation with each other, the kind of fellowship that God desires for us. Remember last week in Romans 15.1, we read Paul's writings, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That's why we don't freak out when little kids cry in the service. I'm mindful there's been a little traffic coming and going. We love little kids around here, but they require a lot of effort and attention, and they inconvenience us. And we pray the church will always have little ones But you know what? The church, spiritually speaking, always has little ones. The problem is we we assess Christian maturity sometimes just by physical, visible means. And just because a person is older in number of years doesn't mean they're older in the faith. And likewise, just because someone is in their younger years doesn't mean that they are weak or immature in the faith. So we gladly bear with even the failings of the weak. So weak faith, we can live with that for a time, but there's a second category, and we need to ask, is this overly restrictive conscience the result of self-righteousness? Go back to Matthew's gospel with me, please, and find chapter 15. Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 15. I want to walk you through a conversation that Jesus had both with some who were overly restrictive out of a self-righteous lifestyle and motivation and then some of the words that Jesus speaks to us and the perspective that he gives us that I think will help us to understand an overly restrictive conscience dishonors God. In Matthew 15, 1, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, here is a practice that had big-time spiritual overtones. To, To eat a meal without a ceremonial washing of your hands. So you can't think coronavirus, pandemic, you know, spreading germs. This is about spiritual cleanliness. 
And so there was a ceremonial washing that the Pharisees and scribes practiced themselves and taught others that they should. And they observed that the disciples of Jesus aren't going through the ceremonial washing. So they're religiously corrupted. But as you continue reading through the story, you find Jesus posing questions for them. And then in verse 10, he calls the people to himself and says to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Quite a remarkable correction to the self-righteousness that created this overly restrictive conscience. Jesus said of these same Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And then in verse 24, he confronts them directly and says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Everybody here knows what a gnat is, and in comparison to a camel, I mean, it, it's like one of the tiniest creatures. But there's a little more contextual understanding that I, that I want to layer into this so you really understand what, what Jesus is getting at. In Leviticus 11, verse 4, the, the camel is included in a group of animals that God said they are ceremonially unclean. Don't eat camel. And I know for us in our context, we're like, never been tempted to. It's just not even an issue. Also in Leviticus 11, though, verses 29 to 34 refer to the contamination of beverages. And if certain kinds of creatures fell in your water pot, the water was ceremonially unclean, not to mention there might be germs that were there as well, but Leviticus 11 is about ceremonial cleanness. Well, at this particular point, though, these Pharisees and scribes, through the teaching of the ages had come to a place where, let me just read a portion from the historical uh, records, if a fly or a gnat fell into one's drink, they might hope to strain it out before it died, lest it contaminate the drink. But Pharisaic legal experts decided that any organism smaller than a lentil, such as a gnat, was exempt. You see what's going on here? They're they're making their understanding of self-righteousness the law for everybody, and and yet at the same time, what Jesus is pointing out, that they're swallowing whole camels, not literally. There's probably no greater example of how this self-righteousness had so corrupted and even seared the conscience of these leaders that they would would defile themselves in the most egregious way when, as, as the Gospels record for us in John 18, 28, these same individuals led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled filed but could eat Passover. They're about to put an innocent man to death, but they're careful to strain out the gnats of this ceremonial cleanliness lest they be defiled when they come to eat Passover later in the day. Oh, what grievous hypocrisy. Straining out gnats and swallowing camels. I was struck several years ago by the cultural gnats we strain out and camels we swallow. When I read the story, and I'm sure some of you saw this, this has been probably five or six years ago now, where there was this, I would almost call it a national obsession with saving young sea lions who had been washing up on the shores of California. And, and I, 
I'm, I'm enough of a Christian tree hugger to value life, okay? I'm not gonna say, you know, let them die. But there was this massive effort to rescue these young, vulnerable sea lions, but at the same time, our nation aborts a million to a million and a half baby humans every year. We're straining gnats and swallowing camels. It appears in church history. The church did this in the last century as we were straining out gnats of association. And, and one of the examples that it just doesn't even register with me, it's diff- but I, some of you might be able to say, yeah, there was a time it was preached and it was taught to even possess a deck of playing cards. Just to possess the deck of playing cards was considered by many to be sinful. Yet in some of those same churches and Christian schools, there was a promotion and defense of the segregation of races. Something that is clearly addressed in the, in the Gospels. Something that Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross, clearly obliterated. And yet in, in the name of truth, this kind of racism was promoted. These are examples of overly restricted consciences that do not honor God. And it causes me to say, Lord, what, what am I being overly strict about today? What gnats am I straining out of, out of my drink, so to speak? And what camels, that's the scary thing, what camels am I swallowing? You see, an overly restrictive conscience does not honor God. So that brings us to the, the big truth. Only a word-governed govern, conscience honors God. And, and we won't go back through all of this, but let me remind you again. Remember Peter's development? He walked with Jesus for three years, and then we went to Acts 10 and, 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 and read the account of how the Lord lowered the sheet uh, of all kinds of animals, unclean, that went against his Jewish conscience, but the Lord said kill and eat, and it ultimately had to do with sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And, and Peter grew, God grew Peter's conscience for gospel mission. You think of the apostle Paul. He grew up as a Pharisee. You think his conscience was cluttered with a whole lot of extra stuff regarding his Jewish Pharisaism? Who knows how long it took God to calibrate his conscience, but he got him there to where he's writing the kinds of things that are in front of us. So we want to guard our conscience according to God's word. We want to grow our conscience in God's word, but, but why? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians 8. And that ultimately is so that we might exercise conscience with gospel intention. Now, by way of review, Romans 14, 17 pointed us this direction. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. What's Paul doing? He's keeping the gospel of Christ central. Can I even put it in these terms? With with a kingdom perspective, with a gospel focus, you're no worse off spiritually if you wear a mask and you're no better off if you do. That's why I would actually strongly disagree with this gentleman who said it's a satanic conspiracy. No, brother, Satan's got bigger plans. Wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. How does that bear on the gospel mission we're on? That's a question that all of us need to wrestle with. 
We're all concerned about government overreach to some extent, but as another brother wrote, and I thought wisely so uh, not long ago, we accept the wisdom and authority of leaders in all kinds of other ways that could easily seem overly controlling. Speed limits, traffic laws, child labor laws, liquor licenses, food labels, cosmetology licensing, taxes, doctor admitting privileges, firearm safety, requirement of a prescription to buy contact lenses, and that's all part of ordinary life. How much more should we be willing to work together for the safety of others in a crisis? I mean, really, beloved, when you put it in eternal perspective, is it that big of a deal? I remember when I was a kid, sitting at the, at the dinner table with some of the you know, my, my dad's generation and my grandfather's generation, and that's when uh, motorcycle helmet laws were, were the big discussion. And, so, and I still remember to this day, a couple of those men be like, the government has no right to tell me I have to wear a helmet. If I want to crack my head on the pavement and die, I'm going to do it. Well, I know there's some states that don't have one, but a lot of others did. And seatbelt laws, that, that was the next round I, in my memory. And when our kids were little, oh, it was such a hassle to strap them into those car seats. And they never had the joy of taking long trips, as I did as a kid, stretched out in the back of a station wagon, not belted in, not strapped down. I mean, if my dad had had a head-on collision somewhere between South Carolina and Illinois in that old Rambler station wagon, I'd have gone through the front windshield. But it was great sleeping, and those were the days of American patriotism. My poor kids, they don't even know what freedom is. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Remember, Paul, I, I summarized this, we didn't read it, but Paul had been talking about his rights as an apostle, a, a, a right to be married, a, a right to receive compensation for gospel ministry. But then he goes on to say, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That's what wearing masks ultimately comes down to. Is wearing this gonna put an obstacle for the gospel? Or is not wearing it gonna put an obstacle? That's the real question to answer. And, and yes, there, I think there's some other uh, equally important uh, considerations, but I'm, I'm speaking in the context of, of 1 Corinthians 9. I'm sure we have to guard against what I would just describe as a, a pandemic paranoia that treats COVID as the great enemy in the universe. The pandemic is not the enemy of the gospel. And likewise, I would say this, there, there's also a patriotic paranoia that I'm sure can be an obstacle to the gospel of Christ. And can I just interject this? I, I suspect that at the heart of both the pandemic paranoia and the patriotic paranoia, is actually what I would describe as a functional atheism. Not that you would outright deny the existence of God, but, but you and I can live in such a way that actually says, um, I don't actually trust God, so I gotta be in control. And I'm sure that neither one of those approaches keep Christ and his cross central. Keep the gospel of Christ central. Number two, so that we might win people to Christ by our service. Look at verse 19 again. Though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Oh, beloved, what, what a mindset that first calibrates its conscience 
to the authority of God and then that believes this great commission that Jesus entrusted us with to go into all the world and make disciples and then begins to strategize, well, well, how can I do that? Who has God positioned me to serve today to share the gospel? Oh, Paul says today I find myself in a Jewish context so I I can go back, I grew up a Jew. I, I know what they say, how they think, what they do. This is easy stuff for me. I just slip into the stream and I'm, and I'm not doing it as a, you know, kind of a relativistic hypocrite. I'm doing it to remove gospel obstacles so that when I have opportunity to speak to this person or to share the gospel in the synagogue, I'm not having to clear uh, unnecessary obstacles, but we can get right to the heart of the gospel, which is Christ and his cross. Oh, and then God, God positions me to go serve in a, a Gentile context, and they don't care about Jewish rituals and, and, and Jewish rites and laws and, and practices, but I'm very comfortable in this setting. There's this beautiful flexibility that begins to develop with an effort, a desire to win people through that service. And then finally, so that we might share gospel blessings with others. Look at verse 23. He's just said, I I become all things to all people that I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Have you thought about this? That there are people who are not yet included in the family of God, not yet a part of his eternal kingdom because they don't understand. They must repent of their sins. They must put their faith in Jesus Christ. So we have no gospel share with them. But don't we desire that? Paul says, I do. This is not pragmatism. This is carefully reasoned strategery for the gospel. And that's what brings us back to a chart and the strength of flexibility. So picture that first chart I had up with a strong column and a weak column, and now we're gonna insert something right in the middle. This is, this is really what I think Paul is getting at in Romans uh, 14, 15, and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, and I know that may be hard to, to read it in full, and um, I'd be happy to share this, even send you the e-file or print off a hard copy if somebody would be really interested. But, but let's summarize this thing with respect to the conscience. God wants all of us to grow and mature our consciences so they're strong and they function, they function ultimately for the sake of the gospel because it's not just about you or me, what we can or can't do. And we also, like the, both the strong and the weak who honor God, some eating food to his honor, some, uh, some abstaining to his honor, but all of us welcoming one another. There's the center of the chart, the words printed in red. Um, but then I also want you to notice the, the box just below it. This is the person who says, I can eat to the glory of God and the service of others. I can also not eat. I can abstain. Happy to go either direction, depending on what particular Uh, what particular mission uh, I'm serving at that particular moment, and again, I do it for the sake of the gospel, and ultimately, this doesn't just create a visible harmony in the church as Romans 15 verses five through seven does. It ultimately magnifies the gospel and helps both Jews and Gentiles realize Jesus is everything. I've recommended that book, The Conscience, written by J.D. Crowley and Andy Nacelli. Both of these men have sermons and and uh, lectures that are available, places like sermonaudio.com and other places. If you can't read the book, I would highly recommend listening to these men teach and preach their way through the same category. But I was was listening to one of those lectures that J.D. Crowley, who's a veteran missionary in Cambodia, and it would be so wonderful just to hear his whole story of how he and his wife 
um, went to Cambodia many years ago, and they made their way back into some very remote areas that, first of all, didn't even have a written language, let alone the Word of God. And uh, they, in partnership with others, developed a, a language that could be written down, and then the, the Bible is, has been translated, most of it, I think, into that very language, and now 30 years later, where it was just, it was, uh, it, it was paganism, uh, it was pantheism, I mean, it was idolatry of the darkest kind. There are hundreds of churches now. So J.D. knows what it is to wrestle as a kid who grew up in American culture with really big differences, and hearing him tell the story, some of it's humorous and some of it's very poignant, but in, in a little summary statement, there are two general categories of people mentioned in the verses above. People like Paul, who become all things to all men for the sake of the gospel, and people for whom people like Paul have to bend. How do you go from being the ethnocentric, me-centric person that Paul has to flex for to being the Paul who is doing this amazing flexing and flowing from culture to culture? Oh, that spoke to my heart in powerful ways about, I think it was six or seven years ago when I first read this book and then began to, to listen to some of this teaching and I thought, Lord, I, I don't want to just be a man who has a strong conscience before you. I want to be a man who's positioned by you to move into whatever group or culture or community and, and live and preach and, and speak and share in such a way that Jesus is everything. So what is the real issue? Well, first, how can I keep Christ and his gospel central? And you know what? If it's not actually central for you, you can't present it to other people like Jesus is really the biggest deal. If he's not the biggest deal in your life, nobody's gonna believe you when you try to tell them he should be the big deal in their lives. So is he central to you? Number two, how can I win more people to Christ by my service? I know that's a, that's a new thought for some of you. You believe the gospel. You're so thankful that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again for your justification. You rejoice every day that you're not gonna pay that eternal debt for your sins. But you haven't taken the step yet to think in terms of, so how can I advance that message? Who do I know that needs to hear this message today? How can I win more people to Christ by the way I live my life? Then number three, how can I discipline myself for the blessing of others? For some of you, that's gonna mean giving up some stuff. You know why? Because it, it puts an obstacle in the way of non-believers. They, they can't hear you present the gospel because there's something else in your life right now that it just speaks too loudly or offensively. How can I discipline myself? It may also mean, I heard a story of a, of a, of a lady who grew up in a very conservative American culture where she was actually taught by parents who loved Jesus and a church that well but uh, was overly restrictive where she grew up in a context hearing that a, a godly woman never wears pants and then God called her to serve on a mission field where the, the standard of modesty has to do with whether a woman's ankles are exposed or not and you know what most dresses expose a woman's ankles so you know what, actually, that gospel opportunity, the context in which she was called to serve meant? She either needed to wear dresses that came all the way to the ground, or, as the women did in that culture, put on pants. 
And because God had grown her conscience to that place where she was able to shed that cultural restriction, even though family meant well and all of that, and begin to serve God. So in her case, it meant adding something. How can I discipline myself for the blessing of others? You've been very patient as we've worked through a lot of material in the five weeks, not just today, and I thank you for that. But I hope this gives us perspective. God, God has given us such a great mission to participate in, and before that mission, he gave us a great savior who lived and died and rose again so that you and I would never die the death we deserve by our sin. And he invites us into this, and he says, stop making a big deal about all this secondary and tertiary stuff. Keep the main thing the main thing, and know that though you were born an American, as Paul was born a Jew, you have the freedom and flexibility in Christ to move to the other side of the world, even to cash in that old passport and have a new one stamped for the sake of Christ. That's freedom. And it's time that we think like followers of Jesus first. Let's pray together. God in heaven, there's a lot of work to be done. And I praise you for the strength and maturity that is here in the body of Christ. But every one of us is weak and immature in particular areas. Would you just continue to grow us by your word? Thank you for those here who are on mission, who, who humbly and enthusiastically, though sometimes fearfully and haltingly, speak of Christ and really do seek to live in a way that honors you and that points others to Jesus. But all of us have work to do in this area. And, and we ask, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts of our pride, cleanse our hearts of that kind of paranoia, whether it be the, the, the paranoia of a, of a pandemic or even the paranoia of patriotism that creates obstacles for the gospel. Grow our faith, grow our vision, grow our understanding to this point where we, like Paul, see the beauty, see the opportunity, and move in and out of the cultures of this world with, with a view of pointing them always to Jesus. Oh, how we thank you that you are the one true God. Thank you for the time we've had together today. And we ask now that you would bless us for Christ's sake as we leave this gathering, as we log off of live streaming and resume those responsibilities and opportunities that you have entrusted us with. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.